Back in the early 70s, James Dobson of Focus on the Family wrote a Christian book called Dare to Discipline that's proven to be a very helpful resource for Christian parents who want to honor the Lord in the way they raise and train up their children. In this classic parenting manual, Dr. Dobson underscores the importance of providing clear boundaries for children so they learn to respect the authority of their parents, and he also emphasizes the need to apply appropriate discipline when our children cross those boundaries and rebel against the authorities that God has put into place. In my own case, I was very blessed to have Christian parents and to grow up in a home where I knew how much my mom and dad loved me. A home where my parents exercised the kind of loving but firm discipline that we read about in the Scripture and that Dr. Dobson was advocating in his book. And now as a Christian dad with three children my own, I've come to discover firsthand that even though discipline is never pleasant for either the parent or the child, it is absolutely necessary if we are to grow and mature into the people that God wants us to be. Probably many of us here this morning are familiar with some of the Bible's teaching on discipline in the home and in the family. But perhaps fewer of us here today understand what the Bible says about boundaries and discipline in the local church. As we continue on this morning in our study of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, we are going to learn a great deal about the need for discipline in the church. We're going to discover why the maintenance of biblical standards through loving discipline is every bit as important in our churches as it is in our homes and our families. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6 and continue straight through to the end of the chapter. And I remind you, this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you've become kings, and would that you did reign that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as the last of all, like men sentenced to death. We have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed, buffeted, and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. 
Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Strong words this morning from the pen of the Apostle Paul. The past four chapters of this inspired epistle, the Apostle Paul has been dealing with the problem of division in the Corinthian church. In our text this morning, he is going to bring this initial discussion to a conclusion so he can begin to deal with other sins and problems that were plaguing this church and threatening its future existence. The passage we just read together here in chapter 4 is a transitional part of the letter where Paul begins to exert his apostolic authority over the proud and rebellious members of this church where he first raises this issue of corrective discipline. These are very strong, even sarcastic words from the Apostle Paul. And we can divide this section of his teaching into two main parts. In verses 6 to 13, Paul issues an apostolic rebuke against the spiritual arrogance of the Corinthians. And in verses 14 to 21, he gives a fatherly warning to these church members who are now rebelling against God. And so with God's help, that's where we're we're heading in our time together this morning. First of all, Paul's apostolic rebuke of the church. Secondly, Paul's fatherly warning for the church. Beginning in chapter 3 of this letter, continuing through the first five verses of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has been correcting a faulty understanding of church leadership by giving the Corinthians a collection of metaphors and images. In chapter 3, he gave them the image of a farmer and the image of a builder. In chapter 4, he gave the image of a servant and the image of a steward. And now here in verse 6 of our text, Paul brings this section of his argument to a conclusion by reminding the Corinthians all of these metaphors and images have been given for the benefit of the church so that they will learn to stay within the boundaries of Scripture and so they will turn away from spiritual arrogance. As we've spoken about at length in past weeks, some of the Corinthians were boasting about their favorite teachers. They were placing these men way up on a pedestal, while others in the church were unfairly criticizing the leaders and were judging them according to worldly standards. In this church in Corinth, Paul had been inappropriately praised by certain members. He had been unfairly judged by other members. He wants the church to know neither of these extremes are in line with the clear teaching of Scripture. Paul is reminding the Corinthians here they must uphold the authority of of Scripture. They must stay within the boundaries of the Bible's teaching. Or as he puts it in verse 6, they are not to go beyond what is written. Like every good and godly pastor, Paul affirms the full, the final authority of God's Word. He has already quoted a number of biblical passages that deal with pride and humility. Back in chapter 1, verse 19, he quoted from the prophet Isaiah. In verse 31, he quoted from Jeremiah. Then in chapter 2, verses 19 to 21, he quoted from the book of Job and again from the Psalms of David. From beginning to end, Paul's teaching on church unity and leadership has been rooted and grounded in biblical authority. He is now stressing the church in Corinth must submit to the authority of God's Word in all things, staying in between the lines and not going beyond what is written. 
Very important reminder for all of us here in verse 6, the reminder that God's word is the final authority for the Christian. We should never go beyond what is written in the scripture as though we know better than the Holy Spirit. When the word of God speaks, our role is to listen. When the word of God commands, our role is to obey. When the Word of God is silent, we do not have permission to substitute our own worldly wisdom as though our fallible thoughts and minds are on par with the Holy Spirit. Many people throughout the centuries have taken a rather arrogant and prideful posture towards the Word of God, standing in judgment on the truth that God's Word contains rather than allowing the inspired Word to stand in judgment of us. The Corinthians are no exception. This is a church that is acting as if they stand above the authority of God's Word when in actual fact, the church of Christ has always stood under the authority of the Word and it always will. Paul reminds the Corinthian congregation, first and foremost, they must operate within the boundaries of God's written Word. And from that starting point, he goes on to challenge their spiritual pride with a series of three rhetorical questions in verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I think we've all heard of an inferiority complex before. But in Corinth, the Christians struggled with the opposite problem. A superiority complex that was fueled by spiritual pride and arrogance. The Corinthian ego had been puffed up by worldly wisdom and Paul's goal here in verse 7 and following is to deflate their swollen pride and to bring them back to earth. And so the first question he asks them in verse 7 cuts right to the chase. For who sees anything different in you? Instead of striving for unity within the church family, the Corinthians had been dividing into factions and each one of these little factions thought they were superior to all the others. Superiority complex had taken the place of humble partnership in the gospel and Paul is now bringing this darkness into God's light where it can be properly dealt with. And so he asked the church in verse 7 what they think makes them so different and so superior from everyone else or as we might paraphrase it today, who exactly do you guys think you are? Paul confronts their pride with this initial question and then he follows it up with two more questions. What do you guys have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why are you boasting as though you didn't receive it? Corinthians are boasting and bragging about all the things they thought gave them a competitive edge over other believers in the church. And Paul puts his finger directly on the problem. Here is a group of Christians who have forgotten about the grace of God given to us in Christ. They have forgotten the truth that everything we have as Christians, everything we are as Christians, comes as a gift from God and not a result of our own good works and human effort. These Corinthians had forgotten the fundamental truth of Ephesians 2. By grace are you saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Now, at one time, the believers in this church did understand that humbling truth of the gospel because Paul had been preaching it to them over and over again. But over the years, their heads had swelled up. 
They had come to believe the lie that they were really extra special in the big scheme of things. That God was really quite lucky to have them in His kingdom. The church in Corinth had been blessed with a wide diversity of spiritual gifts, but the believers had long since forgotten each and every one of those spiritual gifts had come to them by grace alone, just as their salvation had come by grace alone. And so here they are boasting and bragging in their leaders and their accomplishments, their abilities, their gifts, as though they had earned all of these things, as though they deserved the credit for these things. They had forgotten about God's grace. And Paul needs to remind them in this chapter, they have nothing they did not receive from the hand of God. Therefore, they have nothing at all to boast about. As he's already said back at the end of chapter 1, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What an important reminder this is for us, brothers and sisters, who are tempted at times to fall into the same prideful mindset as the Corinthians, to boast and to brag about who we are and what we've done for God. Like the Corinthians, we are all tempted at times to compare ourselves with other people around us, either inside of the church or outside of the church, and to foster a false sense of superiority. As though we are more deserving of God's salvation than all of the people outside of the church. As though we are more useful to the kingdom of God than all of the other believers inside of the church. And when we find ourselves boasting, bragging, looking down our noses at other people around us, it is a sure sign that we have forgotten the grace of God. We have forgotten the depths of our own depravity. We have forgotten the great riches of God's saving grace that pulled us out of the pit of sin and saved us when we could not save ourselves. How easy it is, friends, for pride to get a grip on our hearts so we begin to believe God must have saved me because of something good and noble He saw in me or that God must have added me to His church because some special ability He knew I would bring to the table. In actual fact, God saved us not because of anything good and noble He saw in us. He saved us in spite of all of the sin and the evil He knew was in us. And God uses us in His church not because He can't get things done without us, but rather because He loves us, because He chose us and set His love on us, because He wants to give us a role to play in His kingdom. One of the lessons we all need to take away from this text this morning is that there is no room for pride and boasting feelings of superiority in the church of Christ. If we have truly come to understand the depths of human depravity, if we have come to treasure the riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ, we Christians will boast in nothing except the cross of Christ. We will declare with Paul and the hymn writer, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. In verses 6 and 7, Paul confronts the illusion of superiority with the reminder, everything we have, everything we are as Christians is a result of grace and grace alone. But now as we continue to move through our text, Paul ramps up the rhetoric even more as he lays bare the spiritual smugness, the self-satisfaction that has taken root in the heart of these Christians. Let's have another look at verses 8 to 13. Already you have all you want. Already you become rich. Without us, you become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. 
For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held in honor. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. You know, throughout the history of the Christian church, there has been a tendency to gravitate towards one of two extremes when it comes to our thinking about God's kingdom and the reign of Christ. On one extreme are those Christians who believe the kingdom of God is something that is totally reserved for the future, that the kingdom of God will never come to earth in any way, shape, or form until Jesus returns one day to rule and to reign. And then on the other end of the spectrum are those Christians who emphasize the kingdom of God is a present reality. Most of the blessings of the kingdom have already arrived and can be enjoyed here and now by all true believers. There has been a historic tendency for Christians to gravitate towards one of these two extremes, but when we study the subject of the kingdom in the New Testament, it becomes very evident that neither one of these viewpoints is entirely faithful to the Bible. There is a sense in which the kingdom of God is not yet here in its fullness, which is why the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray that the kingdom would come. On the other hand, There is ample biblical evidence that the kingdom is a present reality. Since Jesus himself said that his authority over the demonic realm was evidence that the kingdom has already come in his person work. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. That is what Jesus taught in Luke 11. And so we find in the New Testament a very real tension between the present reality of God's kingdom and the future expectation of God's kingdom. The New Testament teaches us the kingdom is already here and that the kingdom is still coming. It is now and it is not yet. Now, of course, it can be challenging for us to hold this tension properly, but getting the tension right is critically important because it has practical implications for the way we live our lives. If we believe, for example, that God's kingdom is totally off in the future, we may have a tendency to isolate ourselves from our culture and our society to gather in holy huddles waiting for God's rescue while the rest of the world goes to hell. In the history of the church, a strong futurist view of the kingdom has tended to lead Christians to disengage from society, to give up the hope that God will change anything in this world until the Lord Jesus returns. On the other hand, if we believe that the kingdom of God has totally arrived in the present, in the present, we may develop such a sense of optimism about ourselves and about the world around us that we live in a state of spiritual delusion thinking that things are far better than they really are, becoming far too comfortable and at home in this sinful and fallen world. These are the two extremes, and of these two errors regarding the kingdom, the Corinthians gravitated towards the latter. They were speaking and they were acting as though the kingdom of God had fully arrived when in fact it had not. That's why Paul speaks to them in verse 8 about ruling and reigning as kings, a passage that is dripping with sarcasm. 
You see, the Corinthian church was living as though they were already ruling and reigning in the new heavens and earth. They were behaving as though the consummated kingdom had arrived, that they were not in a world, in a society that was filled with all kinds of sin and wickedness and evil. A naive, delusional pattern of thinking had entered into the church, and Paul is so disturbed by their spiritual smugness, he uses sarcasm to shake them awake, to sober them to reality. Already you have all you want, he says. Already you become rich. Without us, you become kings. And would that you did reign that we might share the rule with you. Corinthians were striving for a carefree life of luxury and ease, but apparently Paul and the other apostles had been forgotten by God and left behind. Because they and all the other Christians scattered throughout the world are suffering. They are suffering trials. They are undergoing great tribulation on account of their faith. And so Paul informs the delusional Corinthians, the kingdom of God has not yet arrived in its fullness. They are not yet ruling and reigning with Christ. That is the main point Paul is driving home in these verses. The fact that the church of Christ is living in an age of tension between the now of the kingdom and the not yet of the kingdom. As Christians, we enjoy many spiritual blessings, many privileges as men and women who are saved by grace and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But the fact remains, we are engaged in a spiritual battle against an enemy who prowls like a roaring lion seeking to devour and destroy. In one sense, the Christian's battle was decisively won at the cross of Calvary. In another sense, the battles and the skirmishes of the Christian life continue on until that future day when our Lord Jesus returns a second time to rule and to reign with his people forever. We are living in an age of tension between the now of the kingdom and the not yet of the kingdom, and Paul emphasizes that tension in these verses by contrasting the triumphalism of the Corinthians with the very real suffering of the apostles. The imagery that Paul uses in these verses might seem a bit strange to us today, but it was intimately familiar for the original audience who lived in the Roman Empire. In ancient Rome, whenever an emperor or a general would win a great victory in battle, he would ride back into the city with a triumphant military parade. At the front end of the victory parade would be the conquering general with his men either marching or else riding victoriously on their horses. And then trailing behind the victors would be all the unfortunate men and women who were taken captive along with the spoils of war. At the very end of the parade were the conquered slaves who had been put in chains and and condemned to death. And after being humiliated and paraded through the streets, they were then delivered to the local amphitheater where they would be struck down and killed by the gladiators or else where they would be fed alive to the wild beasts. In this vivid illustration, the Corinthians are playing the role of the conquering kings parading around in pomp, but Paul and the apostles identify far more with the slaves at the end of the parade. He calls himself the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. And so we see in this text a contrast between spiritual arrogance and genuine humility. On the one side, a group of Christians living under a delusion. On the other side, a group of Christians that understands what is really happening in the world, the reality of sin and of suffering and hardship and loss as we eagerly await the coming of our Lord and the full and final consummation of His reign. 
Tragically, the Corinthian church had become smug and self-satisfied in their spirituality, not realizing that they had sold themselves out to the worldly culture they were not, and that they were now living in a self-imposed state of spiritual poverty. Little wonder this church wasn't being persecuted by the world when they were living just like the world. They'd become just like the church of Laodicea described in Revelation 3, where the Lord Jesus says, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you from my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What a tragedy in ancient Corinth. What a warning for the church in North America. Brothers and sisters, unbiblical triumphalism was a problem in Corinth. It remains a great temptation for the church in many parts of the world. We see this temptation and evidence of spiritual smugness in modern-day prosperity preachers who promise financial blessing and wealth to those who would name it and claim it. We see the smugness in false television personalities who speak foolishly about living your best life now when the Bible is very clear your best life is yet to come. We see it in the faith healing movement, these men who blame all sickness and disease on a believer's lack of faith when in fact sickness and disease and death are part of life in this fallen and broken world. We see the smugness in unbiblical theories of holiness that hold out the possibility of sinless perfection or at least the possibility of living on a higher plane than everyone else. You know, friends, it is good for us to have a longing in our hearts for the fullness of the kingdom. It is good and it is right for us to long and to pray for the day when there will be no more sickness, when there will be no more poverty, when there will be no more struggling against sin. But however much we long for that day and we pray for that day and we hope for that day, we must understand that day has not yet arrived. And what that means in a practical sense is that we must be willing to bear a cross before we wear a crown. One day, it's true, we will be ruling and reigning with the Lord in the kingdom. We pray that day comes soon. Maranatha, even so come Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, we must all without exception learn to embrace suffering and trial and tribulation and persecution as a normal part of the Christian life. Here in our North American context, I think the Christian church is particularly vulnerable to the smugness and the pride of the Corinthians because we suffer so little, because we enjoy so much affluence, so much political protection compared to many other parts of the world where the church walks through the fires of tribulation every day. Here in Canada, we are not used to intense suffering or persecution or hardship. That can very easily lead us to feel smug and superior and entitled. In a subtle way, all of these privileges can condition us to believe that God owes us something. That God owes us protection from persecution. That God owes us good health. That God owes us a long life. That God owes us financial prosperity. When in fact, God owes us none of these things. And has promised us none of these things. 
In a culture of peace and affluence and security, it is so easy to become proud and self-satisfied and entitled and perhaps over time to become a little too comfortable, to become a little too much at home in the world. We lose our longing for heaven. There's so much that we North American Christians can learn from our persecuted brothers and sisters overseas who understand suffering in a way that we do not. May God help us if we ever become so comfortable, so self-satisfied that we forget we are in a spiritual battle and that many other Christians are fighting on the front lines. You know, there's a danger when things are going well. When things are going well in our lives, when things are going well in our churches, When things are going well in our ministries, it is so tempting to become smug and proud. But the message of this text is that God will not tolerate spiritual smugness among His people. As Steve Lawson said earlier this week, either we will discipline ourselves or God will discipline us. But one way or another, we will be disciplined. Well, this brings us then to the second main division of our text, which is Paul's fatherly warning in verses 14 to 21. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in the spirit of gentleness? You know, as we read that text a second time over, you may have noticed the way that Paul changes his tone when we arrive at verse 14. Verses 8 to 13 contain a strong, even a sarcastic word of rebuke. When we arrive at verse 14, Paul's tone becomes much more gentle. It may be tempting for us to assume from Paul's abrasiveness in the previous section that his intent in writing these verses is to wound his opponents in the church or to lash out in anger and frustration at those who had treated him so poorly. The truth of the matter is that Paul's intention here is not to tear down, but to build up. And sometimes strong words are needed to accomplish that goal. Those of us who are parents know there are times when we need to raise our voice. There are times when we need to speak in a stern and a firm way. But our intention is never to tear our kids down or to belittle them, but rather to protect them, to warn them, to direct them, to guide them in the right way. Well, Paul has raised his voice in this text. But in verse 14, he takes the opportunity to reaffirm his love for the Corinthians and to unveil the inner motive of his heart. He's not shaming them for the sake of venting frustration or getting revenge. Rather, he wants to warn and dissuade them from their behavior because it will lead to their own destruction and it will do great damage to the glory of Christ. Paul has spoken to the Corinthians with the authority of apostle. And now he speaks to them with the tenderness and gentleness of a loving father. Although some of the Corinthians have lost their love and their respect for Paul, 
Paul has not lost his love for them. Paul had invested a great deal of time and energy into these believers. I'm quite certain he prayed for each and every one of them, most likely mentioning even his opponents by name in prayer. Because many of the Corinthians who now opposed him and treated him so badly had been converted under his preaching ministry. And regardless of how they feel about Paul, Paul will continue to treat them and to think of them as his beloved children in the Lord. He is reassuring a rebellious church of his fatherly love. And in verse 16, he urges them to imitate the attitude and the example he has already described. A spirit of humility, a willingness to suffer hardship and rejection for the cause of Christ. Commenting on Paul's call for the Corinthians to imitate him, the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson gives some helpful background and context. As Carson has put it, in virtually every pre-industrial culture, sons were expected to imitate their fathers. Vocationally, if the father was a baker, the son would likely become a baker. If the father was a sheep farmer, that is what the son would almost certainly become. The son was expected to carry on family values, family heritage, and the family name. And with that cultural expectation controlling the analogy, Paul argues that if he has become the father to the Corinthians, they ought to imitate him. He does not expect them to suffer in exactly the same way he does. He does not demand they all become apostles or plant churches in distant lands. What he does expect of them is that they will imitate his values, his stance with respect to the world, his priorities, and his valuation of the exclusive centrality of the gospel. You know, it's difficult for any parent to watch their child drift away from the values we try so hard to instill. Paul is no exception to the rule. Paul knows that if the Corinthians continue to walk in arrogance and pride, they will eventually reap a bitter harvest. And so he pleads with them as a concerned father that they will turn around before it's too late. He wants them to turn away from the wisdom of this world and to turn back to the wisdom of God which is found in the cross of Christ. The simplest way out of this situation, the easiest thing that Paul could have done in this situation was to wash his hands of the Corinthians completely to let them face the consequences of their behavior. But Paul loves the church far too much to do that. He will not let them walk that road without first warning them and exercising discipline. Paul was a church leader who dared to discipline. And the reason that he did so was because he cared so deeply for these Christians, because he wanted the very best for them. Now Paul knows at this stage in the conflict, a face-to-face encounter with the church is going to be needed to resolve the issues. But at this point, Paul is a busy church planner in Ephesus. He's unable to drop his pastoral responsibilities and run off to Corinth. But Paul will do everything he can. And so in addition to sending this letter, he has sent his young associate Timothy with instructions to remind the church of Paul's ways in Christ. Preaching the word of the cross. Teaching the Christians how the message of the cross applies to the daily Christian life. Timothy's assignment in Corinth is to begin a process of spiritual restoration. But Paul understands some of the arrogant members of the church will jump to false conclusions. They're going to think that he sent Timothy because he was too afraid and cowardly to show his face and to speak to them directly. 
That's why Paul goes on to reassure them in verse 9, he has every intention to come to Corinth as soon as he can, and he will address his accusers personally. When it came to leadership in the local church, Paul was not afraid to confront troublemakers and to determine whether these men and women had true signs of the new birth or whether they were just full of hot air. For indeed, as Paul says in verse 20, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Although Paul the Apostle does not relish the thought of disciplining the church, He makes it abundantly clear in verse 21, he will come to them. And when he comes to them, he will spank them on the bottom if that is what is needed. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? You know, Paul's words here in this passage may seem harsh. They may seem threatening at first glance, but in reality... Paul's willingness to apply discipline to the church is a reflection of God's fatherly love and concern for his people. In the weeks to come, we are going to discover exactly why the Corinthian church was so urgently in need of church discipline. We're going to also learn what form that discipline took. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, there's an important passage that gives us a biblical perspective on God's discipline. As we prepare now to come to the Lord's table, I want to read that passage and to leave you with these inspired words. Hebrews chapter 12. The author writes, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and that by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he had desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. My sons, do not lightly regard the discipline of the Lord. I'm going to invite the men to come forward at this time as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's table.